0: Praise to you, Great Father. Praise to you, Comforter, Holy Spirit. And praise especially to you this day, Christ our King, but Christ also our friend. In his name, my dear friends. You know, behind that amplifier over there, against the wall, is an electrical outlet. And back in the day when we couldn't afford to hire professional contractors to do all our repairs for us, Uh, I sort of gently bug our property guy, uh, Bob, who was here. Hey, that outlet doesn't work. And man, it would be really handy when we do music from the front if we could plug stuff in over there. And he didn't do it and didn't do it. And he said, can't you just get an extension cord and run it from a different outlet? The outlet was dead. It was dead for about 10 years, finally. And And you know, I get that. You know how much work it is to fix a dead outlet? But especially when the wiring runs in the wall, it's old wiring, you don't know where it's gonna go. You gotta disconnect it, you gotta find out where you think it came from, and then start pulling. You gotta pull wires, gotta make sure you don't lose your way. Who knows how far that wiring had to go before it joined up. I'll tell you one thing though there is only one reason why an outlet doesn't work. It might look really good, You've got a nice brown plastic covering, fits in with everything else. Those brass uh, clips inside hold onto the prongs of your plug, nice and tight. But if those brass clips are not connected to live electricity, it doesn't matter how good your plug looks or how nice it feels that it's being gripped. If there's no juice, no sound and no light because there's no life in a dead outlet. And it struck me this past week that's just the way it is when people chase something, find an idol, worship a God, make up something that they want and put in the center of their lives, but it's not Christ. It is a dead outlet. It does not satisfy and cannot deliver the three F's that we must have in our lives, the forgiveness daily that we need, the favor of God smiling on us like a tailwind, blowing us in, pushing us along, putting treats along the path along our way, helping us, pulling us out of the ditch when we slide off. And the third one is the forever peace. You cannot have any hope of immortality if you are not connected to the ultimate electricity in the world, Jesus Christ. On his day, the Sunday of Christ the King, I would like to savor with you an incredible couple of paragraphs in St. Paul's letter to the Colossians. A rhapsody, which is an ecstatic poem about the coolness of Jesus Christ to re-inspire you, to put him right again in the middle of your life and to kind of review what are the things you've been chasing, what are the things you value most highly and make sure that Christ is in the middle of your life, not off to the margins, and you trot him out only when you need something, like an ATM machine that you only talk to when you want some money. Jesus is... The ultimate electricity. All other so-called gods are idols and they are dead outlets that are not going to get you anywhere. Take out your Bible, if you would. There should be one near you or uh, if you prefer to do it digitally, you can whip out your digital device and look up Colossians chapter 1. Our reading today will begin at verse 15. Uh, Not to show any disrespect to the first two big paragraphs. They are magnificent. In fact, this whole first chapter of Colossians is magnificent. Magnificent essay in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's one of the bedrock, foundational bedrocks for everything we know about the meaning of what we read about in the history and the Gospels. Colossians explains why all that stuff happened the way it did. And in the most beautiful and majestic language, phrases that stick in your mind. Could you find Colossae on a map? Probably not, not to disrespect you or anything, but it's it's just not very well known. It's small, Uh, it's a small town. It's upriver 100 miles from Ephesus. Now you've heard of Ephesus, you might, uh, some of you probably could find Ephesus on the western coast of what is today Turkey. Colossae is upriver, it was in the Ephesus sphere of influence, and St. Paul spent three years in Ephesus. For him, that was a long, long time. And he sent one of his trainees named Epaphras, who went upriver to Hierapolis and Laodicea and Colossae, the smaller towns upriver, and kind of worked them as kind of mission stations. And Colossae was favored by Paul with its own letter. Or maybe I should say, who knows, the other ones got letters too, but Paul's letter was so good, and the Spirit decided to polish up the language and supply the content for this letter uh, because the Spirit had in mind to include this into the New Testament. And so it took special pains uh, to buff it up. And this is just a masterpiece. And I hope you get to love this letter whenever you are low and need a lift, dive right into Colossians and let the Lord Jesus pull you out of the pit so Although Paul perhaps never was there himself at that congregation, he had a steady stream of visitors who would go back and forth and tell him what was needed and they had a number of dysfunctions there that they were struggling with, nothing new there. Corinth had a ton of problems uh, if St. Paul was writing to the Milwaukeeans and addressed St. Marcus. He could um, make me squirm for two hours by pointing out all of our weaknesses as a congregation. We could stand a divine tune-up, I'm sure. But one of the things that was bugging the Colossians is they were too deeply in love with Greek philosophy and were starting to overthink some of the divine concepts. In fact, some people who were like forming cults where it's telling people, we've got extra information that your old lame old Bible, that that basic little Sunday school thing is not good enough. We've got better and deeper information. You need to join our group so that you can understand the deep stuff. So it became a kind of elitist kind of cult thing that was starting to draw people away and was starting to bleed off their confidence in both Christ and in the Bible that bears witness to him. So Paul decided to write a ferociously beautiful illustration of the person and work of Christ. All right, enough of the buildup. Let's read it, what he wrote himself. Let's go to verse 15. And in this paragraph, there are eight magnificent metaphors for who Jesus is and what he did. Each one More helpful and brilliant than the last. The first. He, meaning Jesus, starts off with a pronoun, but we know it's Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. So that's metaphor number one. Jesus made God visible. You know, doesn't that drive you crazy? Wouldn't it be a lot easier to be God's child if you could see him? If you could hear his voice directly the way you can hear the voice of your own earthly father or your earthly spouse or your earthly mother? Don't you think it would be so much easier if you could see something laid out before you? This invisible worship of an invisible God is kind of a tough slog for some people and maybe it's been hard on you too. Maybe you really struggle to get your children into talking to somebody they can't see. Maybe that creeps them out and they think that's weird. God gets that He says, remember who ran away. Remember who separated from whom. The human race bolted on me. I didn't dump you. You dumped me. So you're just stewing in the the stew, the horrible soup that you people made. But I'm staying engaged with you. I've sent you my word so you can see me and hear me in that way. And when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem those under the law and let God become visible in human flesh. This is amazing. Uh, The image, the, the Greek word is icon. It's where our word icon comes from. Jesus lets you see God and how wonderful he is. He's not like the Wizard of Oz who scared Dorothy and Toto half to death and bullied them and scared them and it frightened them. Jesus showed how kindly disposed God is towards people. Watch him work. He never hurt anybody. He was interested in helping people, even the people who needed to be smacked around and tuned up in their life. He did it just to win them, not to beat them down. He will return as a judge, but his first appearance on earth was to show how kind God is for people who struggle who are wounded, who are ill, who are sick, who are confused and lost, who are miserable and depressed, who feel their lives are pointless and useless, who feel lonely and frustrated by how hard it is to scratch out a living in a hostile world. Jesus gets it and lived our life for us as the icon, as the image of an invisible God. And let us see how kind and loving our God is. So that's that's metaphor number one. Second, he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, that is a weird statement. Firstborn? Huh. Was Jesus born? What? Well, yeah, in Bethlehem, but this is not talking about that. that is, that's actually going to, going to be referred to in a bit, his, his physical incarnation. He wasn't the first person ever to be born. Uh, Cain and Abel were the first people ever to experience childbirth, um, appearing on earth in the normal way. They're, they're really the firstborn, right? This is talking about Christ, our brother. He came to be one of us. But his existence, you might say, has a human child was even before Bethlehem. His birth was determined and worked out in plan even before Adam and Eve ever fell into sin. Yes, that's true. God actually had his rescue plan pre-organized and ready to go in, in case it was needed and it sure turned out that it was. He is the first one, the firstborn, the first to exist of all his future brothers and sisters, and and but that oh, that opens up another can of worms. Okay, so he, if you're born, that means there was a time when you did not exist. My father will always be greater than me because he was there before I was, and I will always look up to him, even though he's been in heaven since 2014. He, in my own mind, is always bigger than me. He's always greater. He's he's older, he's still smarter than me, and getting smarter all the time. Now in heaven, he's way smarter than me. So I always feel like I'm in the presence of a greater thing. Jesus is the only begotten Son of the Father. You've said those words, and you've read them, and you believe them, but but some people say, well, doesn't that prove that he's lesser than his Father? In fact, it makes it seem like he came be God at all. Because if he was begotten, if there was a time when he did not exist and then sprang into existence, he is not God from all eternity. His, he, he may be God into eternity, but he's not God from eternity. So that makes him a, at best a junior level God. Like he's the B team and the father is the A team. And None of that is true. Here's one of scripture's paradoxes. And I'm saying this to you not so that you understand it, because you won't. I can't, so what makes me think you can? I give it to you to believe because it's simply passed on to us. Jesus, and here is as simply as I can make it. Jesus is begotten of the Father. And that's a crazy word too. Most, we never use that word anymore. It, it refers to the man's contribution to the creation of human life. Everybody knows women do 99.99% of everything responsible for, for bringing a child into the world. We love you for that for many reasons, but that's one of them. Uh, but the the men have a small but important bit part, and that is called siring or begetting. So at least you contribute your half of the DNA to this new creature, right? So Jesus is the only begotten son of the Father, and yet he is co-eternal with the Father from all eternity. It's like he's always being begotten. That father- son relationship never had a beginning. Is, it, is that helping? It's always been like that. Daddy, son, always. And Jesus is not younger than his father. So in that sense, he is the firstborn over all creation. He is the the first of God's children, as it were, and we are now filling that out. But he's the first of us. Number three, he's the creator of all things. All right, there's another paradox. You have said a 100 times, maybe 500 or a 1,000 times, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. We're constantly attributing creative activity to the Father. How true. But don't forget the Son and Spirit were there as well. Genesis 1 verse 2 says, the Spirit of the Lord God hovered over the waters. In other words, the gigantic mud ball that was... Earth's raw materials on the construction site before God started organizing it. The Spirit was there. Christ was there. When God decided to make people, he didn't just unilaterally make a decision. He had a committee meeting of the Trinity. He didn't say, let me make man in my image. What did he say? Let Thank you to the four of you who've read Genesis 1 and 2. Let's try that again. What, who, what did he say? Let us make man in our image. It was a committee. The Father, Son, and Spirit were all there and had a mind meld on what they were doing. So it's all fine to attribute creative direction to the Father, but don't leave the Son out. And Paul says he was not only there, but hip deep. Look at this. By him, by Christ, all things were created. Things in heaven, so the, the heavenly world right now, the throne of God, the, all of the angels on earth as well. Things you can see, what you cannot see, infrared and ultraviolet rays, gravity, molecular attraction. All, all of what holds the world together was invented by him. Now these next four things, thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities, this is St. Paul's code language for angels. When you read, he he uses these terms repeatedly in his epistles. These are referring to the different ranks of the angel armies. And those also came from the mind and will and word of Jesus Christ, King of all, the great King. All things were created by him and for him. Even from all eternity, when they were making the world, it was the Father's plan that everything was going to rotate around Jesus Christ, the Son. Which is interesting, you know, like, Father, why didn't you have it rotate around you? And it sure does, in a way, but this passage says that the universe was designed to focus on Christ. So if you're If the electrical plug of your life, if you plug in to what you think is important and it's not Christ, you have a dead outlet. There's no life there. There's none of the three F's are there. No forgiveness, favor, or forever will come into your life, in your mind, into your heart, your soul, and your body. Christ was created uh, or, or was made, was designed as his role for him to be the center of all creation. He's before all things, both in importance and time. And in him, all things hold together. So that's metaphor number four. He's the glue of the universe. He keeps everything held together. He invented gravity. Not just a good idea, as they say, it's the law. It was a joke, you can smile a little bit. It keeps you stuck onto the ground so you don't drift off into space. If you ever tie a string around a rock and whip it around your head, you're going to feel a touch on that string, aren't you? You're going to feel it pulling on you because that rock does not want to stay connected to the string. What does the rock want to do? Fly away. What keeps our planet whipping around the sun in its oval orbit and doesn't take off? Who's Mighty hands are holding it all together. If God ever let go of earth, we would drift off. Man, if you think January in Wisconsin is cold, just imagine that every uh, thousand miles farther away from the sun we get, the colder it would get, and soon we would become a giant ice ball where there used to be human life. But Jesus, the glue that holds it together, allows the earth only to go so far in its orbit and then it wheels around and starts moving again. And that centripetal force that should throw it off like a projectile, like a slingshot, like David's little smooth stones getting whipped at Goliath, God's hand keeps it going around in its track. What keeps that wooden bench you're sitting on from just disintegrating and dumping you on the floor? If you studied your chemistry and physics in high school, you know about the molecular attraction that keeps uh, substances with integrity, keeps them together. And the tightness of those covalent bonds inside the elements of that wood are strong enough to bear your weight. You might say thank you to Jesus that your seating held up today. He is the one who holds everything together. Number five, he's the head of the body. Notice it doesn't say head of the corporation. Uh, when we talk about headship, usually what people think of in the word, when you say that somebody's the head of something, is he's the boss. Well, true enough. But the main point by saying he's the head of the body rather than the head of the business, is not about his executive authority or power, which are true enough. But what your head does for your body, your head is not in competition with your body. Your hands and feet need the head. If you walk out of the house in two months and you think, duh, I forgot my gloves, and your hands are yelling at you, man, dude, I'm cold, come on, I need some gloves. Get back in the house and get your gloves. You forgot your gloves. And so your head says, feet, back in the house. We forgot the gloves. The hands are hurting. we got to help our hands. Guess what? Every pain nerve in your body is wired to your brain. When your body is hurting, your brain is unhappy too. Get this, Jesus is the head of you. You're part of the body of Christ. That means when you're hurting in your life, physically hurting, when your spirit and soul are restless and in pain, when you've had a really hard, stressful week, when you're being stressed and challenged Is my life worth anything? Do I have any friends? Is there any worth to me? What's the point of my life? Why is my life so hard? And you're really getting down on yourself and starting to drift into that sludgy pit of self-loathing and hatred. Your pain nerves are connected to your Savior Jesus because he is organically connected to you. This isn't just a business relationship. It's organic. It's all connected. When you hurt, Jesus hurts. That's an amazing thing. Also, the other way around too, when you're, when, when you're really loving life, when, when you've got joy, guess what? Jesus is smiling too. Because he's tracking how you're doing. He is directly wired into your experience. I think that is so amazing. He's the firstborn from among the dead. That's the sixth metaphor which is odd because it's as though his grave was like a womb, like a uterus, and coughed him out, just like giving birth to him on Easter. Isn't that a cool metaphor? Like, instead of being his prison, his grave became a way of giving him new birth. He's the first one out of the grave under his own steam. Now, he's not the first person ever to be resurrected. Jesus himself raised three people from the dead. But they all died again. J- Jairus' daughter, a sixth grader, uh, got, got to live again. And it was really cool. And then she became Jairus' teenager. And then she became, uh, she got married and Jairus had a son-in-law. And uh, she became Jairus' son-in-law's wife. And then possibly the mother of Jairus' grandchildren. And then uh, she went into, then Jairus' daughter went into the nursing home. And then she died again. But Jesus came out to stay. He's the first installment of something God is going to replicate on a massive scale. In business, they call it, this is the beta test. Jesus was the beta test of physical, bodily, and spirit resurrection from the dead. He went first so that you don't have to be scared of being put into that box or being crisped up and your ashes put in an urn and sit on somebody's mantle somewhere. You don't have to be afraid of that. Because the firstborn went ahead and showed you, hey, it's cool. Relax. I went first. You're going you're to pop out better than ever. You're going to love your new life. And he's the demo of what God is going to do for you and for all those who you're aching for right now and wish you could have back in your life. Relax. They're safe. Jesus is the firstborn to be resurrected. Number seven, he's the fullness. God had all his fullness dwell in him. Many people, very religious, view Jesus uh, sort of patronizingly as an interesting provider of proverbs and uh, homely advice on how to be nice to other people. And they say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I like a lot of things that he said. But they don't like what he said, that he is the is God's Son, fully God, part of the Holy Trinity, who is going to be their judge on the last day. Uh, In fact, that's what Jesus, got Jesus his uh, death warrant from the Jewish Sanhedrin on um, Maundy Thursday evening, late into the night, early Friday morning. His claim to be fully God, that fullness, they called blasphemy. So this is not an interesting option. This is mandatory. You believe this or die. This is a life or death concept for you to accept and embrace Christ as fully divine as well as fully human. There again, the two natures of Christ are a paradox you will never understand. Just believe it and embrace it. Put your arm, put one arm around each one and give give those two concepts a hug and claim them all. Last, he's a reconciler. He took warring, separated, antagonistic parties and brought them together. Speaking about putting your arms around, Jesus atoned for the human race, which is a made-up word meaning at one. He took separate uh, parties and brought them together. By his death on the cross, he reconciled and bridged the gap between sinful human beings and a holy God. And what he did by that was he enabled God to have it both ways, both to save and love people, but also to punish sin to the utmost, to put the curse of death and hell on, as he said he would, and he did by putting it on Christ. And through faith, you and I may claim his work on our behalf so that he, in this way, could die your death for you, experience hell for you, but enjoy forgiveness, favor, and forever as his gift. Those are the eight extraordinary metaphors to celebrate with you. Once you were alienated from God, you're an alien in heaven. You don't belong there. We were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But he changed your situation and now changing you. Now he's reconciled you by Christ's body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, without blemish free from accusation. He says the same thing three times, holy, without blemish, No accusation. That's pure grace. Now the faith part, continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel you heard that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. And I celebrate that with you, not only to experience awe today, but the idea that Christ is is the firstborn And you and I are part of his family. It means he's not only your great king of whom you need to be in awe, he's also your friend. And I leave you today by adding a a P.S. Jesus said to his disciples shortly before they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and then to be arrested Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this that you lay down your life for your friends. You are my friends. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my Father I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. On Christ the King Sunday, treat Jesus like the great king that he is, but embrace him in gratitude also for the wonderful friend that he is. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.